children to king's kids. We're going to read our scripture verse, which is from the New Testament. We will we'll read from the new when we're teaching from the old and vice versa. And again, we, we try to make these verses pertinent to the sermon. So it's not just something that we try to just throw scripture out. Um, we pray that the Holy Spirit guides us through the selection of these verses to be part of the theme of the service. And today is Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. And so may the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. And anyone here that's uh, going off to King's Kids, you could do that now. And we're also, uh, we, we don't have our Spanish translators here today. And so uh, you can keep uh, Kevin and Elvira in prayer as they're traveling back, I believe, right now. And, um, and I meant to say when I first came up here, how blessed we are by your worship, girls. F- fantastic. And um, thank, it's great to see Rebecca back as well, too. And so um, just very blessed with that. So today we're going to be in Nehemiah again. We're in, we've gotten out of chapter 9. You never thought it was going to happen. You thought you were trapped in chapter 9 forever. But then came chapter 10, which is really part of chapter 9. If you remember when we first started this chapter 9 and 10, we gave an overview of both chapters because they're tied together. They're a covenant treaty that Israel made with God after they heard how bad they were failing in keeping the temple and also keeping the law. And so they made this new treaty and we went through all of that and we talked about all the different components of these ancient treaties which basically was a preamble, um, witnesses, historical prologue, blessings and curses. And then at the very end of every treaty was the obligations for for, um, obligations for continued um, something. I can't remember. (laughs) Let me look at my notes here. I I don't don't know why I forgot that, but think of something else for a second. I'm sorry, it came to me right now. Obligations of undivided allegiance. And so, obligations of undivided allegiance were a part of the end of the treaty that showed that this is what we're going to do to maintain this treaty for generations to come. And we see part of that at the end of chapter 9, and chapter 10 is all about that. They actually write out the covenant, they sign it, and they also list the things they're going to do in order to keep it. And so if you go to chapter 10, verse 1, I'm going to read just the first part of the verse 1 because you'll see there are tons of people mentioned here. So it says, Now on the sealed document were the names of 
colon, Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah. And of course, that's who our book is about. And then at the next part, they begin, and Zedekiah. Now he was listed first. I'm not saying he, he's not listed as a high priest, but he is one of the top priests. And then all the way down through um, verses, uh, uh, up until verse nine, we have a list of all of these different priests. And I was very tempted to go through each and every name and tell you the meaning and tell you where they're at and all that stuff. But the Lord thankfully prevented me from doing that. Uh, And then chapter uh, 10, verse 9, all the way down to verse 12, we have the Levites. So we have the priests listed who are the signers and then the Levites. Now, the Levites were those who were in charge of the temple service. And then we have the leaders of the people. And this was the the civil leaders, the the ones that had influence, the ones that had uh, money, the ones that were known to be faithful um, in the service of God. And we see that from verse 14 all the way down to verse 28. And now verse 28, I'll begin reading. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining in with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And that's big, a curse and an oath. Now, this was given through Moses, the, God, the God's law. This is the law of Moses. And they promised to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And now they start talking about that. Verse 30, they will not give their daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for their own sons. As for the people of the land who bring wares, which is like products, or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt following the Sabbath. Verse 32, we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Now, I want you to remember that phrase, the house of God, because in every verse from now on to the end of the chapter, it is mentioned as the purpose. For the, It says house of our God. Verse 33, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Now, pause for a second. If you come this Wednesday, we're going to dive deeper into this and show how Christ actually fulfills all of these things in the temple to the very, very T. The grain offering, burn offering, Sabbath, the showbread, and so forth. We're not going to go into that today. Verse 34, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites and the the people, so they might bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of our Lord, our God. Again, this is a lot of systems they're looking to maintain here. As it is written in the law. And, verse 35, that they might bring the first fruits of the ground 
and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough. That's not this type of dough. That's for dough for the bread, the show bread. Our contributions the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God. And the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God. For the sons, this is verse 39, for the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. So as you can see, the theme of this chapter is not neglecting the house of of our God. And that includes the law. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a, a, a house. Six people live in my house. And it's very, very difficult to maintain that house with six people. Now, the Levites, the, the singers, the, I'm sorry, the Levites, the priests, the leaders, and everybody who signed it is about 83 different people who are putting their name down as a pledge to make sure that the house is in order. Now, how many people were represented in all this? Over 50,000 people were in Jerusalem at the time. The house of God is mentioned around nine times in seven verses. So they were maintaining the house of God, and that's what they did not want to neglect. So what I want to talk to you about today is why was that so important? What did they actually mean by it? And how do we relate it to ourself now as we live in the kingdom of God? <clears throat> do we need to rebuild the temple? Do we need to have uh, make this church a little bit more pure and holy? It's funny because oftentimes I'll meet contractors and stuff in here. And uh, we'll go outside and they'll be talking and, you know, they're throwing in their curse words and things like that. And I don't, I don't say anything, right? I'm not say, sit there judging. And then when they come in, they'll slip. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry I cursed in here. It's like you were just cursing outside. <laughs> What's the difference? He goes, well, this is that, you know, this is the, the house of God. It's the altar there. And I was like, well, we have, we, it's a little different. You know, let me explain it to you. So the house of God isn't necessarily the actual building for us. But for Israel, the house of God, the building, the temple was absolutely everything. <clears throat> so why, what, why did they have this focus and why was it absolutely everything? Well, again, it was part of their obligation of undivided allegiance to maintain the house of God. Why? Because the Lord was in his holy temple. Uh, Psalm eleven four says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You see that? It's almost a contradiction. The Lord is in his holy temple in heaven, and the Lord is also extended in 
down into earth, but only in his holy temple during the time of Nehemiah and during the time of Israel before Christ. So God dwells in perfect holiness. That's something that is hard for us to get our minds around. I know when we talk about God cannot be selfish, that's hard. But to imagine that God, he does nothing for himself. He needs nothing. It's hard because we need everything. And all we do all the time is try to sustain our life and our, our lifestyle and all this stuff. God needs absolutely nothing. However, God's holiness is on a whole different level. Okay, if, the, if God's holiness <clears throat> was to, is, is, let's say it's, it's, a, it's bright, it's a brightness, let's say, we know how bright the sun is. It would be, we can't even over-exaggerate this, but he would be next to the sun and the sun would appear dark. That's how holy God is and separate, which is the meaning of holiness, separate he is from this sinful fallen creation. So he dwells in perfect holiness on his throne in heaven and that gets extended down for the people in this time into the temple. It says in Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. So what are we saying here? All of the components of the temple, including the law, which is intimately intertwined with the temple, serve as a covering and a shade, not for God, I'm sorry, not for God's people, but for God to be exposed to his people. As he covered Adam and Eve with animal skins, you remember after they sinned, then they hide and they hid, God, it doesn't say God killed an animal, but it's inferred in the verse that he gave them animal skins as clothes. So there was a sacrifice there. There was a covering that he had to put on them immediately. Why? Because he walked among them in the garden. And so he covered them. So as he covered them with animal skins after they sinned and became unholy, the unholiness of man's nature, Israel's nature, their fallen nature, had to be covered in order for his presence to be around them. Otherwise, they would be consumed. You see, we always think of the law and the temple as these lists of things that they had to do. And we sort of think of it as like this moral ladder they had to climb to please God. That's not true. The holiness of the temple was holy because of why? It was God's presence in there. And the heavenly temple manifests itself in the earthly temple. It's a copy and a shadow, the earthly temple, of the heavenly temple. So God mirrors what's up in heaven so that way he can be just and righteous and be present with his people with everything in place so that his holiness doesn't destroy them. Again, the instructions of the temple, such as the law, were not arbitrary rules. They weren't a way to get to heaven. The Jewish people thought nothing of going to heaven. They automatically thought they were the people of God. God was going to raise the dead and restore Jerusalem and Israel as the number one place that's going to shine out and rule the whole entire world. 
<clears throat> and they allowed the temple and the, and the law, they allowed God to interact. They allowed him to walk among his people. Leviticus 26, 11 to 13 says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people, but only through the temple and the law. Now, again, this is ultimately pointing to Christ, but don't jump ahead there yet. Deuteronomy 23, 14, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you from your enemies, your camp must be holy. How did that camp become holy? Not by the people doing all the good stuff and being perfect. No, the camp became holy because it was covered with the, with the components and the rituals that God put in place to protect the people that when he walked through and interacted for them, he didn't zap them and, and just extinguish them what his, for his holiness or with his holiness. So the temple and its rituals were not just for the people to worship God, but they were given by God so he could dwell and walk among them. Now, I was never a firefighter, but if any of you here have been part of the fire department, they have safety zones. In other words, if they go to a fire, according to what I was told, the first thing they do if the fire is consuming a part of the house or a building or anything like that, is one of the person's job is to set up a safety zone outside of the, uh, or around the perimeter or outside of the uh, danger of the flames. The reason they do this is because of the wind. So they'll evaluate the wind. Where's the wind blowing? They'll also measure the distance from the fire to where the safety zone will be. They need to make sure that they're not putting the safety zone in a place where the smoke is blowing right through because that could harm and even kill people just as well. And so when you think of the temple and the law, I want you to think for the people of Israel, it was the safety zone. By them maintaining the house of God and maintaining the law, it created a safety zone for them to interact and commune with God. And so when that safety zone was neglected, that's when things became uh, troublesome. And so what did the Israelites promise to do in relation to, to this uh, maintaining of the house of God, to, to maintain this safety zone? Well, this is covered in verses 29 to 39. It says it right here, all the different things that they would do. It says they would observe all his commandments and ordinances and statutes. <clears throat> and this was to ensure the law of Moses was kept. <clears throat> now, what was the law of Moses? Well, the sacrificial law, the sacrificial system. Where did that happen? That happened in the temple. The civil and ceremonial laws all extended into the temple. The moral law was inside the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> but now, since the Ark of the Covenant was gone, which, thank to Ray Lisky, who brought this to my attention a couple weeks ago, the Ark of the Covenant was gone. It was taken by the Babylonians. And so they just put the, the, the tables in there. If they even had them, they would do all the rituals just on the empty altar. But the, the point is, is that the law, the Ten Commandments, were also made holy because they were put in the temple. They were written by the, the finger of God. So they worked together. 
They took an oath not to give their sons and daughters to the people to not defile the temple. You couldn't come into the holy place if you were not Jewish, if you weren't an Israelite. You also did that to maintain the seed, not pollute it with, with the Gentile seed because it had to go straight to the Messiah. And of course, they committed to keep the Sabbath, which is also the fourth commandment on the moral law. We often, <clears throat> we'll talk more about this Wednesday, but again, we often, we have many views of the Sabbath, right? But God, the basic, the basic aspect of the Sabbath is based off of God resting after he made creation. Now that rest is not a rest like, oh, we can finally sit back and, whoo, that was hard, creating the world. No, that's not what rest means. It's very synonymous with rule. When a king sat down in his throne, he sat down to rule with authority. And so the Sabbath rest is God sitting down after he made his creation and being king over that creation. And he called his people to emulate that and rest in the way that they could understand. And that was by not working during the Sabbath. Now, again, not all of them sat there and rested on the Sabbath. The priests continually worked on the Sabbath. We'll talk more about that in a second. But now let's get to the meat of this. <clears throat> How does all this relate to us? Do we maintain the house of God? Do we have to maintain the house of God? What does that house of God mean to us? Well, I, the answer to that is yes, we do have to maintain the house of God. Because we are just as sinful as the Israelites were then. And God is just as holy as he was then. He's never changing. So the problem still exists. We still need the house of God to be maintained and not neglected so it can be our covering. And I know some of you are thinking, well, the temple's gone. The law and the rituals can't be implemented anymore. So do we rebuild the temple and begin sacrificing again? Well, according to the Temple Mount and Land of Israel Faithful Movement.com, yes, yes, they, our goal is, their goal is to build the third temple. Well, I don't know why it's the third, because it would actually be the fourth. I guess they're not counting Herod's temple. On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they want to liberate the Temple Mount first by getting, getting it out of Muslim control or Arab occupation. And their goal, and believe me, this is, this is supported by many, 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 many thousands and thousands of Christians and churches. They want the temple to be rebuilt because that's where Jesus is going to come. And that's where he's going to rule when he comes back. The first part of his second coming, or actually the third, which I don't agree with, but I'm just showing you some of these things. They want it to be the moral and spiritual center of the world. And again, many have joined into this. Now, would that something God would want us to do? That would be sort of similar like putting the scaffolding back on the brand new building that it helped to build. So let's say you, we, we build a brand new church and we put up all the scaffolding to get up to the third story and we take it down and we're like, the church is so beautiful. And you say, yeah, well, we, we're going to put that scaffolding back up so we can remember 
you know, how we built this thing. And, that, and that's where the real thing, if we didn't have the scaffolding, we wouldn't have this building. So we got to keep the scaffolding on. So you guys walk in, you just have to be careful, falling debris and those sorts of things. No, we don't do that. Another example is choosing to go back and live on the ship that brought you to your homeland. So you wanted to go to your homeland, your place, your paradise, and you, you get on the ship and you go there, the small rickety ship. The last thing you're going to do is go back and live on that ship. You'll remember it. You'll think of its importance and significance, but you will not go back and rebuild that which is not needed. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. And Paul echoes that and says in 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God in him, Jesus, are yes, and in him, amen. So think of every promise of God in the whole entire Bible. Don't search further than Jesus. They're all fulfilled in him. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're off the hook. We, even more than Israel, have to maintain the house of God. But the only difference is, is the house of God is no longer a physical building where God dwells, requiring sacrifices and careful obedience to the regulations of the law. The house of God that we must take care of and dwell in to meet God is Jesus Christ. He is the place where heaven and earth now meet. It was the temple. That's where God met with man. It was the law. That's where he met with man. Through the obedience, through this, the, that, that synergy of the temple and the law together. One can't be without the other. But now we go to the new temple of God. Jesus Christ. All the things leading to Christ were meant to be types and temporary of what was to come. Every law and temple requirement has been fulfilled in Christ. The temple was the ship that took us to our destination, but again, it's no longer needed. The scaffolding is taken down so that beautiful building can be seen and used. The new temple, which I read earlier, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in the whole building, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple. Okay, so you as well. Do you not know that you are also the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? See, that's the key. You're not the temple of God as a Christian. You're not a Christian if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. Now, we say, oh, yeah, we got the Holy Spirit. But if you said that back in the time of Nehemiah, yeah, God is living in me. I don't need to go in that temple. Just cover your head because the stones will be coming. That would be blasphemy. That's why when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his body, that was the accusation against him. They knew what he was referring to. And that's why they say, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? Jesus said yes, but they didn't understand that he was the full fulfillment of God returning to his people. He was the full embodiment of Israel's God in the flesh, fulfilling everything that was promised. 
And so this begs the question, okay, so how do we get to the, to the, to the, to down the business here? How do we maintain this new house of God? How do we not neglect this new house of God? We've defined who it is. It's Jesus. He is the house of God. Because we are in Christ, we are many temples. And that's why the temple was destroyed in AD 70. That's why Jesus says, you go out now, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them as I was sent by the Father. Now I send you. So Jesus was resurrected, put on the throne, and now millions and billions of mini temples are going out into the world. Bringing the temple to the people. Telling them the gospel from the spirit that is in them. And when they believe on Jesus Christ, they can then also commune with God. Unabashedly, without restriction. You can commune with Jesus Christ. He can be your every need. He can fulfill everything that it is that you need. Whether it be healing, and not just physical healing. But I'm talking about healing from your past. Healing from your present. He can forgive because he is the new temple. He is the sacrifice. You enter in and you know what? There's nothing to lay down on the altar other than yourself and belief and trust. Because he already did it. His blood atones for your sins. Every sin you've ever committed. If you go to court for a debt that's already paid, the judge will throw you out and probably think you're insane. Why are you here? No, I, I, I got to pay this debt. That debt is no longer existent. It doesn't, it's not even listed on, uh, anymore. You, you've, been, you've already been cashed out. No, no, no. I, I still want to pay more. I feel so bad. That's how we are with Christ sometimes. Instead of seeing him as the sin bearer, we go to him and we say to him, oh, Lord, I, I know that you forgive me, but you know I just can't get this out of my mind and I'm just going to... Hang on it because I want to make sure that I always feel a little bit bad. So that way I always do, you know, it keeps me in check. That's not what produces the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is freedom from not only sin and its power in your life, but that doesn't come until you first give your sin over to Christ on the cross. And so I encourage you to do that. You and I are, sinless, are sinful people. We're not going to sin uh, be sinless, we're going to sin less as we love and come to know Christ. But the speed of that and, the, and all of the cadence of that happens only according to God's will. So if you try to speed it up and be something that you haven't reached yet, God will put you in check. He may give you a crisis. He may give you a situation that shows you who he is with a loving and gentle hand. I'm not, God isn't a tyrant. God isn't looking at what you did and say, well, I'm going to match that and, 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 and you know, rack up your, uh, your, your tire, you know, in your car. I knew I was going to get a flat tire because I sinned two days ago when I should have did this. I did, shouldn't have did that, whatever. It's not how God works. You probably would have gotten the flat tire anyway. So go to him and say, Lord, I give you all of my sin and leave it at the cross. Amen. <clears throat> So where am I here? How do we maintain this new house of God? How do we do it? Well, number one, simply, 
Do not neglect Christ. That because he's the, the dwelling. That's what we're seeing here. We are not going to neglect the house of God. Very good, Israel. But for us, we are not going to neglect Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, how do we neglect it? Well, I ask you this question. Are you entering in to Christ? Imagine Christ being the temple with a door wide open. Are you entering in or are you watching from a distance? A lot of times we have that sit back and watch attitude. Now, sometimes it's good to do that in relation with people. Like if you tell somebody not to do something, you warn them 10 times, they still do it. And sometimes you just got to say, I'm going to just sit back. I'm going to let it, I I just got to let it happen. I can't go anymore. I can't do that. But relaxing and waiting to enter into Christ fully is like waiting for the very last minute to try to check in at the airport. Did you ever do that? I, I laugh sometimes and I say, you know, my wife likes to go. She, she Every place that she goes is only 20 minutes, regardless of where it's at. And so she'll leave for the airport sometimes. And I'm like, Aren't you, isn't your flight leaving two hours? I mean, you have to be at, I'm at the airport three hours before, four hours before. I'll sit in the gate because I'm just paranoid like that. But and she doesn't quite wait till the last minute. But imagine if you did that. Imagine if you waited till the very last minute to get onto your flight. And now what happens if you're late? The doors close. And maybe they'll open them if you come into that little window. But once that plane starts taxiing away, you are left behind. So do not wait to enter into Christ. This is what Paul means by saying now is the day. Or the writer of Hebrews, now is the day of salvation. How can you neglect such a great salvation? Enter into that rest now. Don't wait until everything is perfect. Like the foolish bridesmaids, they were waiting for the groom. And at the last minute, what did they decide to do? Go out and buy oil. They They forgot to prepare. And while they're going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came And those who were ready went with him. They entered into that wedding feast, but then the door was shut. And I do believe there's nobody sitting in this room right now that will ever stand before God and say, well, God, you didn't choose me. Nobody. You will be exposed for rejecting God. All of us, every human being has the knowledge of God in their heart. Every person knows that they are, have violated and that they are a, a, a spiritual criminal. So don't just, you cannot blame God. You cannot say, well, you know, if God really wants me to change, then he's got to do it. There is an element of truth to trusting and waiting, but it's in a spirit of begging the Lord, pleading with him, surrendering to him. And yeah, that may take a while. But you will be, as, as long as it takes that much more, you will be enriched. What we must do, people, is refuse, not just to enter. We, we don't refuse, the, we don't, we don't want to just like, oh, be careful. Let's make sure that we enter in all that. When we get in, we have to refuse to leave. We have to refuse to leave God's presence. Now, again, salvifically, when you are saved, you never are going to lose or be plucked out of the hands of Christ. 
So everything, I can't say everything about everything every time, but I can pastorally encourage you like the book of Hebrews, like the book of James. I am telling you right now, don't ever refuse, always refuse to leave his presence. Praying, I pray, Pat. Commune with God. I commune with him, Pat. Well, read his word. I, I read his word. Okay, let me ask you this. Is Jesus like breathing to you? Is he like breathing? Do you breathe? How many times did you breathe in the past minute? And don't look at what the internet says, because they'll probably tell you pretty accurately what you did. But you didn't realize it, how much you're breathing. You don't realize your heart pumping right now. Now maybe you do. But that's how our communion with Christ has to be. It has to become natural, like breathing. Our bodies, when neglected, what happens? They begin to get weak. They begin to get sick. Our immune system drops. Our homes, when neglected, begin to fall apart. If you neglect a little tiny water leak, it could take the whole part of your house down after a while. Our relationship with Christ when neglected, gets rotted away by the sickness of sin and apathy. But when we're continually in his presence, you know, we often think, well, I'll, I'll you know, I want to be able to really have a talk with God before I go. Well, if you really want to have a talk with God the day that you go and meet him, then every single day repent and commune with him. And then you could say, the day that I died, the day I went to be with the Lord, I repented and I was communing with him. Don't let those gaps outside the house, hanging out where you're not supposed to be. Be in communion with him. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about is serving the house of God, serving Christ. You remember Jacob, right? Who did he love more than any other woman? He loved Rachel. He said to his, her, uh, her father Laban, I will serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel, the younger one. And he did it. He served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but like a few days because he loved her. And that's what it is with Christ. When, we're, when we love Christ and we're passionate about him and he's part of our thoughts, all of our thoughts, he's the filter that our eyes see through. He is the, uh, uh, the filter that our brain thinks through. He, and I'm not saying that's always going to be perfect that you're going to do it, but that's what you're intending to do. Then you will, it'll be like nothing. It'll be like breathing. Well, Pat, you know, you know, Laban deceived Jacob and he had to marry Leah. Well, guess what? He said, all right, but I still want Rachel. I'm willing to serve seven more years. And he did. Will you do whatever it takes to serve Christ, the one you love, more than everything else? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to work for 14 years like Jacob did? Well, Pat, I don't know. I mean, I, I do it, but, you know, my, I don't have a lot of time. I, you know, I'm trying to do my best. And, and we all know how that works. You, you never wake up one day and, and you're like, oh, I checked my phone. I only have 18 hours today. Everybody else has 24 
That never happens. We all wake up with 24 hours. Now we may sleep a lot of those 24 hours, right? We may sleep eight, but try, try this. As you get a little older, you need less sleep. You can sleep six hours and spend two hours with God. You can sleep seven hours and spend one hour with God extra. No time is honestly, is just an excuse. It's, it's when, if, if you say you don't have the time, it's never about that. It's about priority. And I try to always check myself and say to people, I don't like to say, oh, I don't have the time because that's a lie. I have the time, but it's just, it can't be there because something else has a greater priority. And so when it comes to spending time with the Lord, make him your first top priority. That's the whole aspect of tithing, taking from the top of your income and giving to the Lord first, not going, uh, oh man, I forgot to tithe this. You know, I got all these bills. Uh, you know what? Let me, um, let me just give God, you know, whatever I can give him. Now that's not saying that's bad necessarily, but it's not putting him first. That takes a lot of faith and trust and boy, will God reward you if you do that. Now, you also, there is an aspect of committing to the service of the local church. Because this is Christ's body, not the building, but all of us. As we said, we are all tightly united as the body of Christ. The church is not a monument to be maintained, but rather it's a movement that grows. When the church is neglected, it begins to become a monument, a statue of remembrance. Oh, I'll remember how we used to do this. I'll remember how we used to go out all the time and we used to have this going on and that going on and we had all this fellowship and we did all this teaching and everybody was involved and all that. that be, that's a monument. That's a statue. The spirit of the church from that monument status will go to... It changes from, from zeal and complacency to everything being routine, from stepping out in faith to just being okay with maintaining the status quo. We become very Sunday-centric. Yes, we'll tolerate the preaching as long as it's not past 45 minutes. The worship, it, yeah, it's very good, but you know, I'd rather have a little bit more uh, hop and contemporary, so I'm going to come in a little after worship. Or vice versa. We have all these little things, and fine, that's, you know, we, we, we choose what we choose. But the problem is, is that the church doesn't just stay as a monument. It then moves to what they call a mausoleum, where it becomes dead. All the zeal. I mean, the financial resources, they're there. We're tithing, we're doing well. But the life of the church is a place of the dead. We have to get back to being a movement. Movement. When this happens, everybody gets involved in serving each other and the church and Christ. This is when the people are willing to sacrifice anything for Christ and his church because they know they will gain everything. People don't give their lives for monuments or mausoleums. They give everything for movements. <clears throat> and again, things that come to mind. Serving in the church. I know most of you here serve in a capacity, but think beyond that. 
Beyond just coming and doing ministry, although we need that here. But think about how you can serve Christ and minister to him by ministering to his people. Of course, this is tithing, time, money, and first fruits. We see first fruits here in the scriptures. The word first fruit in this passage comes from the word bikurum, which means promise to come. So when you come and give your first fruits, you're making an investment, to, you're giving back to God because of the promise to come. So you're building with that, not just supporting the local church, but you're pushing forward the kingdom of God. Which again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, your labor will not be in vain. And again, you are a priest in the house of God. Everyone here who believes in Christ, you are a priest. You're like that Levitical priest who's continually making an offering 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the temple. See, there is no break. That's why Paul said, don't let anyone judge you on different days and Sabbaths and things like that, because this is the Sabbath rest we're living in. Christ has taken his seat on the throne. No longer these Saturday rest days. No, we come on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, the day of celebration, the day of new hope, and we worship God. But that doesn't mean we don't do it every single day, 24 hours, every day, seven days a week. Create a lifestyle of service to Christ and his church. I'm not saying you got to do, everybody has to do everything, but we have to be sensitive to the spirit. Where are you called? And again, mostly here as the temple, we were talking about this in, in Sunday school, that everything depends upon man's heart. All the, the, the especially our government in particular, which is a republic, based on a rule of law. People say it's a democracy. It's a democracy within a republic. So yes, we vote and we do those certain things, but only according to the republic, the law. But you know what, will, will, what, what destroys a democracy and a republic? People. Their sinful hearts. Desire for power. Those are the things that the founders said would destroy the republic when they wrote it. They said, you know what? This is all going to depend on morality and religion. I forget which one said it, but I could find out. Email me if you're really interested in it, and I'll send you. I have them all written down somewhere on my computer. And what I mean is as the temple of God, you are the temple of God that makes up the church. So this ultimately starts with the hearts of the people. Again, you're that mini house of Christ going into the world, telling of this new sin-cleansing temple, which is simplified in the gospel. And so we're compelled to go out and share our faith. If we don't, we neglect Christ. We're neglecting furnishing the house of God with new people. We say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not that. That's other people. No, you are. You don't have, there's no such thing as a gift of evangelism. It's not mentioned in the scriptures. There's the evangelist. He's a gift to the church. That's a church office. But all of us are called to share Christ with others. 
Now, I probably 15 years ago, I would tell you exactly how you have to do it. And here's what you have to say. And here, there's nothing wrong with that training. But I'm just telling you, love Christ with all your heart. Be open and he will bring you opportunities. Pray for the people around you. Ask God to open their hearts. That is taking care of the house of God. So very simply, our maintaining the house of God is not attained by rule following, not attained by rebuilding the temple, obeying the law of Moses, or this church building or any other. It's not found only in the super spiritual people, sinless people, the reverends, the right reverends, the wrong reverends, the bishops, the cardinals, the priests. It's all found in Christ alone. He and he alone became the curse for us. And so therefore, we owe him our lives. And it's not a slavery that we owe him. It's a submission that is going to give us more freedom than we could ever know. Let's pray. Father, we see the amazing love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, move in our hearts to serve your son, the temple of God, and to serve each other, also the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're amazed by who you are and what you're doing, and we are so thankful that you've called us out. We are the called out ones, Lord, the church. And you've called us for a purpose, Lord, well beyond just getting to a good afterlife. You've called us to be a part of your work here, but Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance. Let us not be overwhelmed, Lord. Let us be just the opposite and just sit back and pray and wait upon you and let us rest in the sacrifice that you've already given. But then Lord, speak to us and show us so that way we move to action. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together for our last worship song. Thank you.